Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 158. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, where we help women navigate career transition and step up as the boss of their lives. Now, our mission here at Bossed Up is to help you craft a happy, healthy, and sustainable career path. And today's conversation is so related to our core mission because it's all about how to protect frankly, your authentic self at work, especially in a workplace that feels toxic or taxing or constantly stressful and is burning you out. Joining me for today's conversation, spurred on by a wonderful listener career conundrum, is my former podcasting co-host from Stuff Mom Never Told You Days, Bridget Todd, who I'm so thrilled for y'all to hear from once again. For my longtime Sminty listeners, for those of you who haven't yet met Bridget, you are in for a treat. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to remind you that in just under three weeks, I will be in Washington, D.C. for our next Bossed Up Boot Camp. This is the weekend-long flagship workshop that really started it all back in 2013. It's designed to help you navigate career transition, meaning maybe you're looking for a new job, maybe you're looking to take a step up into leadership, maybe you're feeling totally lost and stuck and hungry for change in your life. We take a holistic approach that tackles the personal and professional all in one powerful weekend that women have been raving about since 2013, because this, frankly, is the backbone of my entire business. (laughs) So this podcast you're listening to wouldn't be possible without the success of Bossed Up Bootcamp. Nothing I've done since 2013 would have happened without the intense positive reactions that we've heard from so many women about their experience at Bossed Up Bootcamp. In fact, I'm looking back at the survey results from our most recent class of bootcamp alums who joined me in Chicago this July because we always survey our participants right after the weekend is up to make sure we're constantly improving and growing. Here's what a few of them had to say about Boston Bootcamp. Quote, it is an extraordinary opportunity to discover, plan, and share your life priorities in a supporting and safe community. End quote. It's, quote, a space for you to learn, network, and have fun while working within a structured environment to truly make the time to look inside yourself and ask what you really want and need from your career, end quote. And just one more here. Someone said, quote, Bossed Up Bootcamp is an amazing weekend where you get to take the time to dive deep into what you want within your life and career. It is a chance to take hold of the direction you are moving, end quote. 
I'm so excited for the powerful weekend we have in store in Washington, D.C., September 28 and 29, with a rock star lineup of trainers joining me. And then your last chance to catch us at Boss Up Bootcamp this year is coming up in Los Angeles on November 16 and 17. If you are ready to invest in yourself, in your career, in your life, and clarify where you're headed and how you're going to get there, don't delay. Register today for Bossed Up Bootcamp. We have easy three-month installment payments available and scholarships available for those in need. Head to bossedup.org slash bootcamp. Check out the FAQ section for more information and email me anytime, emily at bossedup.org if you're interested in joining us. Now let's dive into today's powerful conversation with my pod pal for life, Bridget Todd, spurred on by this really compelling career conundrum called in by Taylor. Hi, Emily. My name is Taylor, and I am from Illinois, and I work in a private practice for an orthopedic physician, and I have a career conundrum that I kind of wanted to go over with you. It kind of piggybacks off of the How to Handle Mean Girls at Work podcast that you did. I think it was episode 76. But the problem that I'm having at my office is I have a physician and it's his practice. He is a micromanager. He's very proud of it. But I see the way that he talks to some of the other, there's about 27 of us in our office. And if somebody asks a question, he is a lot nicer to them than he is to me. And I'm the practice administrator for him. So I don't know if the expectation is just higher, but it often causes a lot of problems. I've had a few mental breakdowns in this position because I deal with a group of girls that I would quote unquote that do their job and are, you know, normal acting. And then I have a couple other employees who, for lack of a better word, act like complete toddlers. So I want to kind of go off of the how to handle mean girls at work kind of segment and kind of piggyback it off of how to handle different personalities at work and how to keep yourself in mind and not lose yourself through these certain situations. And that's the the issue that I have currently is that I'm trying to manage 27 different personalities and it takes away on you as a manager and as a boss. So I just was kind of curious as to what your advice would be on how to handle it without losing yourself, because I feel like throughout this process, I've lost myself. Ooh, Taylor, I feel you, boss. This is a tough situation. And I first want to just say what you're going through is challenging and is hard and is probably pretty isolating and scary. So thank you for calling it in and articulating this. Know that you've got an entire squad of support here at Bossed Up backing you up. And I am thrilled to have with me today my pod pal for life, the former co-host of Stuff Mom Never Told You, 
Bridget Todd. Bridget Todd is the founder of Unbossed Creative, which you're going to hear more about. She got her start teaching courses on writing and social change at Howard University. Since then, she's trained human rights activists in Australia, coordinated digital strategy for organizations like Planned Parenthood, the Women's March, and MSNBC, and ran a training program for political operatives that the Washington Post called the Democratic Party's Hogwarts for Digital Wizardry. She got her start in podcasting as a producer for MoveOn.org's flagship podcast in 2012, co-hosted with me on Stuff Mom Never Told You, and she currently teams up with culture and arts brand Afropunk to host a global salon where she's talked to high-profile activists and creatives like Ava DuVernay and hashtag MeTooCreator Tarana Burke. Bridget Todd, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. What are some of your first reactions to Taylor's career conundrum? I feel for her. I really do. It sucks, right? I think that as women, we have to deal with so much more at work. We bring so much more at work. And I think that for women of color, Black women especially, it's like completely magnified. And so I think that's one of the trips of living in a society that is, you know, by definition, sexist and, you know, racist. Like in order to show up in these spaces, we have to deal with a lot more. It's like that old quote about Ginger Rogers doing everything backward and heels, right? Like we have to do the same thing, but we have this extra weight on us while we do it. And it's completely unfair that we have to deal with it, but it's reality, Mm. right? And so, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about like, oh, gee, wouldn't it be better if the world wasn't this way? But it's reality. And it's funny because something that Emily, that you said when we were podcasting together on Sminty, I I don't remember what the conversation Mm -hmm. was, but it was around advice for women at work and how you can sort of gamify assertive communication. And I remember saying like, oh, wait, as a woman, like, why should I be tasked with speaking more like a man if I want to get something done? Maybe the the world should should be more like me as opposed to expecting me to be more like, you know, more assertive or more like a man. And you said something so interesting. You were like, it is just a tool in your toolbox, right? Like, you don't have to do this. You don't have to talk like a man or act like a man in the workplace to get ahead. But if you want to set yourself up for success in the workplace, knowing all the different tools that you can use or not use, that you can pick up or put down could be a helpful thing. And that really sort of shifted my thinking around it. And so I think to that end, when we have conversations about showing up authentically as yourself at work, There are going to be times when maybe it's going to be advantageous to you to code switch or maybe Mm -hmm. not. And sort of knowing that it is a tool in your toolbox that you can use and not have to feel bad about using it, I think is really important. You know, what Taylor's describing is very familiar to folks who have to juggle expectations on two ends of the spectrum and probably more than that even. So she's got these 27 direct reports, which first of all, that's an insane situation. And then she's got this boss who's kind of a dick to her, it sounds like. And how as a leader, you know, that pressure to have the stiff upper lip, like keep it all together. You're the Mm. leader. You can't show vulnerability. And then have someone you're supposed to report to for hopefully support from your manager is not giving it in that same regard. Like, that sounds just like a lot of stress in the form of microaggressions. And I want to talk a little bit about what those microaggressions look like and how they chip away at your sense of identity, your sense of self, your sense of authenticity. And I feel like you're someone, Bridget, 
frankly, I'd love for you to catch our listeners up on what you've been up to in the past couple of years, because you've got so much going on. You know, there's a lot of people that you are working with and collaborating with. And I feel like you're one of those people who's just always in demand and always being asked to come here and do this because you have so much great talent to share. But how do you manage those expectations in a world that sometimes feels entitled to your time, energy, and attention, even when you're having a mental breakdown, even when you're having a bad day or when you're going through something? Like, how have you navigated that? And catch our listeners up on, on all the cool stuff you've been up to, by the way, since since we parted podcast ways. Yeah. I mean, you said a mouthful. I think it's true, right? Like, I'm someone who likes to do a lot of things. Since leaving Sminty, I'm started my own podcast production company called Unbossed yes. Creative, similarly named. <laughs> but from Shirley Chisholm's inspiration, yes, which yes. I love. She's one of my idols. I'm, I'm looking at a framed picture of her in my kitchen as we <laughs> podcast. And the thing that I loved about her was her traditional identity as Black women. So she was an educator. She was a community builder. She was someone who her roots were in interacting with the folks that mattered to her that looked yeah. like her. And that she was able to take what some might see as sort of not impressive political experience and use that background as a as a launch pad for her very serious political career. Some folks might be like, oh, an educator, oh, like, oh, a community builder, <laughs> oh, like, oh, you spend all your time like dealing with like black single moms, oh. But she was able to use those experiences and talk about them in ways that got people really fired up about her political yeah. work as a way to to sort of launch herself into this amazing badass political woman that she was. And so similarly, I want to tell those stories about underrepresented people, women, people of color, immigrants, people who didn't go to college, all of us, and you know, have our stories be told in ways that get people really fired up about not just our humanity, but like kicking ass yeah. for us, you know, whether it's calling that lawmaker or donating to that campaign or running for office, whatever it is, I want to tell the stories that get people fired up to, to make the change. Amazing. But yeah, I think in that work, it does involve having to be in rooms with a lot of different personalities <laughs> and know how to manage yeah. it. You know, I've had times where I have been dealing with all kinds, you know, from A-list celebs that I am producing a podcast that they are a guest on, and that's an interesting experience, to, you know folks who don't own computers and that's yeah. an experience, right? So it's such a spectrum of people and energies and personalities and expectations that I feel like I juggle. And it does get hard. Something that Taylor talked about in her letter that really like sent chills up my spine was when she said that like she'd already had a couple of mental breakdowns. Yeah, she just casually dropped that in there and we were like, oh damn, Taylor, like that's not normal. Not yeah. normal, you know? Not okay. Yeah. So the thing I want to like pull out of her letter is that this yeah. is serious, right? Like black women are dying. We are struggling. You know, we are disproportionately impacted by a whole host of physical ailments, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, fibroids, not to mention black people in general are 10% more likely to be dealing with like serious yeah. mental health issues. And that gets worse for black women. And I think that at least in my view, so much of that can be attributed to exactly what Taylor talked about, this idea of having to kind of mask up that work and to juggle all these different personalities from the 20 some odd right. people that you manage to your big manager who doesn't treat you right. And like you can see it, dealing with that is killing us. It's yeah. hard, right? Like Black women are dying younger and younger. It's very serious. And so I think the first thing is to sort of acknowledge that. 
it's not fair. It sucks. It's awful, but it's real. And so pretending that it's not real isn't going to get us anywhere. I want to also just highlight the fact that, you know, we're talking about this with an intersectional lens because it's important to acknowledge that stress impacts different communities differently. And we actually don't have a clue what Taylor's race is, <laughs> just to be clear. But I'm excited to sort of have this nuance to how we're discussing the stress that she's facing, the microaggressions that she's experiencing from the toddlers she manages and her weirdly <laughs> passive aggressive micromanaging boss. You know, burnout is not a joke. And it's also not something that is proportionately doled out because stress impacts different communities a lot differently in our country because of inequality, right? Systemic oppression, systemic injustice. So it's important whenever we have these conversations, sure, we're talking about Taylor's experience, but we're also talking to the rest of the world about how Taylor's experience might look different in different communities. So I just want to underscore why that nuance is so important in the work that we're doing whenever we're dishing out advice or, you know, career guidance or coping mechanisms for stress. Not everybody can meditate it away. You know, not everyone can burn some sage and call it a day. Like these are real stressful forces that can lead to major mental and physical ailments like you're talking about. Yeah, I'm glad that you added that. It's funny, hearing Taylor's letter, I just assumed she was a black woman because of what she was dealing with. Yeah. She, she very well might might not be, but her experience sounded so spot on to the things that, yeah, familiar to the things that I've faced as a black woman in the workplace. So I was like, oh, of course, black woman, of course. Well, I actually don't know. I just it's interesting, isn't it, that at the end of the day, all humans want to feel respected. We all want us to be treated equally. The interesting research around microaggressions, which are those like everyday slights and degradations that chip away at your sense of being treated like a human, they are disproportionately doled out to folks of color at work. And I want to talk about the hidden cost of that, like the labor, the exhaustion, the effort that goes into code switching, whether it's talking to, you know, Betty one way and then dealing with the toddler that is you know, Joe in a different way, or if it's just the action of walking into work and trying to leave your personal baggage at the door and psychologically suck it up for eight hours a day. I mean, that's exhausting. Tell us about like what that means as it relates to your career, Bridget, or as it relates in your opinion or or, or based on on your sort of research and, and insight into this to communities of color in particular. Yeah, I mean, you really said it there. It can be exhausting. And I think that we have to acknowledge the toll, like you were saying, the toll that that takes on our work, on our physical selves, on our families, our personal lives, all of it. You know, something that I really appreciate about Boss Stop is that it really makes you understand that you can't leave your personal stuff at the door. You know, we're people. And so we have partners, we have families, we have other stuff going on in our life other than work. And so when we show up to the workplace, we bring those things with us. And I think as Black women, the expectation is that we leave those things at the door. I do think that we get looked at differently for having personal life stuff, the same stuff that everyone had when we bring it to work. And so I think that in my career, it's been hard. I've had to learn about it. And I've, I've definitely been where Taylor sounds like she is, where I just feel like I'm, I want to give up. I feel like I can't keep going. It's just such a juggling act. I don't want to make it seem like I 
have it all figured out. You know, I had a panic attack on the streets of New York City a month ago where I was just like, oh my God, I have so much going on. Like, this is so much stress. I am going to lose it. And I think, you know, being honest about that toll is important because for the longest time, I thought it was just me. I thought that Black women, we are strong. We are super women. We can do it all. This and right. that, like, like that is that is the legacy that I thought I needed to uphold. Come to find out, that's just not true. You know, Black women are right. amazing. We are so strong, but we're not superheroes. We're not super women, and we cannot keep telling this story that we can yes. show up as superhumans when we are human, right? We are strong and wonderful and dope and amazing, but we are human. Right. And we have all the other things that humans have. And I think that's like this radical equality moment that we're in right now, which is, hey, let's normalize therapy for all communities, right? Like, let's let's not say you have to be twice as good to go half as far, even if, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that phrase because it comes up so often in communities of color, even if there's some truth to that, which is you won't be rewarded to the same extent for great work. I feel like that mantra, that saying you have to be twice as good to go half as far is, it sort of plays into this martyrdom mindset that I find troubling, right? Like the the idea that you can never let them see you sweat and the respectability argument. Like, I'm really just beginning to unpack more of this in a brand new book I just picked up for brand new to me called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the idea of like respectability in that Black American experience in particular, I think leads a lot of folks to feel like they can't break down. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that and, and how that does more harm than good when it comes to treating yourself like a human, even when the world doesn't show up in that same way. I think that's absolutely true. I think they're all related in this like thorny ball of horrible stuff that we have to deal with and unpack. Respectability politics, this kind of superwoman attitude that a lot of Black women have, this attitude of having to be twice as good to go half as far. I think all of those are related. You know, I think that as marginalized people, the kind of benefit that we often don't get is nuance, right? Like people... Right. Have a harder time seeing us as multifaceted, nuanced people and seeing our humanity in, in those ways. And so what can really be a trip is when we internalize that message about ourselves, that my yeah. humanity is wrapped up in my ability to, to work hard and produce a thing, whether it's a podcast or, you know, a meeting or yes. whatever, like my, like my humanity is wrapped up in my ability to produce. And if I am having an off day or I'm taking a break or I'm breaking down, my humanity is like less than. I think that once I, right. I definitely internalized that message somewhere along the line and had to unpack it and say, no, if you had a stressful week and then on Monday you kind of aren't so productive, that's okay. If you take a vacation and don't do crap, but like read books and soak in a hot tub, guess what? That's okay too. Unlearning that internalized voice that says that my self-worth and my humanity is all wrapped up in my ability to produce capital and that that capital is what makes me respectable. That capital is what makes me feel like I can like go to a restaurant and be treated well or like go to a store and not have people's eyes on me thinking I'm going to steal something. That like my ability to produce things is what like makes people respect me in the world. Unlearning that was tough and it's a process, but I think that's really important. I think it's an important work for all of us. 
so major. Like my worth is not equal to my work. Exactly. And I don't know how many times we all have to say that to ourselves before we believe it, but there are times when, you know, my recovering perfectionism led me to feeling like, okay, if I just work really hard and get an A, I'm good. I'm a good person. That That's, you know, validating. There's this hilarious scene in the show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Have you ever watched that show? Oh, I've seen every episode multiple times. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind I of a, it regularly. It's such a bizarre <laughs> sitcom, but there's a moment when Dee is like, I think she's seeing a therapist for some reason, and she just goes, tell me I'm good. No, tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. <laughs> and she like demands this positive affirmation. And I think it's a funny little anecdote, but it really is emblematic of our times of so many of us are busy, performing, perfecting, pleasing, trying to be told we are good and not always getting it, not always being appreciated. And if your self-worth is wrapped up in that kind of validation, ooh, it's it's a bumpy road. So how have you worked on that? Because it's been quite a journey, I feel like, to get to a place where I can have a bad day and not feel my whole identity, my whole sense of self crumble along with that bad performance or something. But how have you worked on that yourself to unlearn, like you mentioned, that internalized pressure to perform and please other people? I wouldn't say I have it down pat. But I think things that have helped me, therapy, certainly. I know that's, I feel like I, I shout that from the rooftops. Yeah, shout out to therapy. <laughs> yeah, shout out to therapy. It's It sucks because like not everybody can afford it. It's like not accessible for everybody. But if it is accessible for you, I think it's really important. Two, yeah. again, is something else that I don't think everybody could just up and do. But like working for myself, having more control over the spaces that I will and will not be in has been really helpful. Yes. You know, you started your own business pretty early on. I remember like thinking, wow, like when we first met thinking like, wow, this young person started their own business. That's, that's wild. But it was wild. <laughs> I remember those early days at NOI. That's right. I was just yeah. like, hey, can I just crash here and work for the day? Because I'm an entrepreneur and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah, I mean... And you were so nice about it. Back, back then, what you were doing was like unfathomable to me. And at that time in my life, I could never have dreamed of not going into a workplace every day and like working from nine to five and cashing a check like my organization's name on it. Yeah. Like that was what work looked like for me. And then so for me, work was going into a place that someone else owned, working there for a few hours on hopefully stuff that I like halfway gave a shit about and then going home. And so I had really associated a whole host of things that just like weren't good for me with work. And so right. work meant putting on your mask. Work meant laughing politely at your cubicle mate's joke that wasn't really that funny. Work meant, you know, just juggling this whole host of stuff that never really felt like me. And I was just like, oh, well, that's work. Like, that's why you get paid to do it. It's called work, not play. And yeah. when I started working for myself and having more agency over the spaces that, and the people that I will and won't work with, I realized there was a different story. You know, right. I think I had told myself like, oh, I'm just like not a very good employee, whatever. Like, you know, I'm good at some things, bad at others. And actually I was just not working in an environment that made me feel good. And I think that Right. That was a really big change for me um, and was really helpful in terms of helping me unpack some yeah. negative things I had internalized around what work looked like for me, if that, if that makes sense. I'm so happy to hear that. First of all, I'm like over here, like rooting you, you know, like my fist is in the air, Bridget. I'm so pumped for you. Um, 
I also just want to highlight like one of the words you used, which was, which is so key, which is you felt a newfound sense of agency. I just produced an online course for LinkedIn learning all about burnout, what it is, how it manifests, how to prevent it. I'll link to it in today's show notes. And at the end of the day, like one of the biggest factors for preventing burnout, if you feel like you're in a toxic workplace or just a workplace, like you said, Bridget, doesn't set you up for success. Any way that you can take back some agency in small ways and in bigger ways is going to come as a huge relief. And that sometimes means entrepreneurship, if you can swing it. And I think it's amazing whenever any of us take that leap. But even just finding the time, making the time, making the effort to get the f*** out, to get into a workplace that invests in a humanist approach, right? I'm really thrilled by the revolution we're having in business, not every business, but in a lot of businesses, which is trying to figure out a way forward that doesn't just maximize shareholder profits, but actually sees talent and employee satisfaction as one of the key benchmarks for success. The business roundtable announcement last month basically said for the first time ever, we're not putting shareholder profits in these 100 companies over the well-being of our workers. And I think we're in the midst of a new worker revolution, which looks really different <laughs> than the last round or two or three. But I think there's an interesting facet there, which is agency is all about how much of a sense of control, autonomy do you have over your day-to-day. -day. And Taylor, if you have a boss who is a proud micromanager, oi, Geez, like, God, uh, that made me just cringe when you said that in your voicemail. You've you've got to find a different place to work. I mean, I don't want to put pressure on you because I know you got a lot of pressure already, but invest in your next step and make that a step away if I were you, because nobody deserves to feel like they're not living up to some proud micromanager's expectations with 27 direct reports who are not making your life any easier either. Like there are other ways. There are other stories about work like the one you just articulated, Bridget, that could be your story too. Absolutely. And I think the idea of being a proud micromanager, honestly, this is a bit of a self-own on, on Taylor's manager because if Taylor's manager presumably hired her, had some hand in hiring her, it honestly doesn't make him sound like a very good judge of character that he hired somebody but has no trust in their ability to figure it out and yeah. gives them and like does not empower them at all so it's like he just doesn't sound like he believes in his own abilities as a manager the fact that he right. hired her and that proudly micromanages her day to day like what, <laughs> right? like what is he saying about his own ability to hire I think sometimes also we get so wrapped up in winning the game of work that we don't recognize that this is not a sport this is not a game that we want to win you know what I mean? Like, I almost feel like the basis of her question is, how do I succeed here? And my question is, why? Why do you want to succeed there? You know, like the definition of success under a proud micromanager is not one you probably want to live. So a lot of times at Bossed Up, people come to our website for resources for how to navigate career change or how to level up in their place of work. And I think we are so quick to assume that we're the problem Instead of looking at the systemic forces at work and say, hey, this is the problem, <laughs> it brings me back to the very beginning of this conversation and where you acknowledge like sometimes the game is rigged and you have to decide how to play your cards to either hack into that rigged system or get the f 
out of that rigged system. And that is a choice that only you can make, preferably before you hit a breaking point. But it sounds like Taylor's already been there. And I think the choices you make in reaction to your own personal fork in the road are where your character is built up. That's where your values are on display. And we have to be, especially as women, and especially as women of color, we have to be willing to go to the mat for ourselves and defend ourselves and our rights and our humanity to be treated like a human being. We, like, we have to do all of that because we deserve it. Not just because it's, yes. it, it, like, it's the right thing to do career-wise, but we deserve to have our humanity affirmed because we are humans. And every time that we make a choice that reaffirms our humanity, we are making the right choice. If you want to learn more about Bridget's awesome new podcast production company, head to unbossedcreative.com. If you have a boss move to share or a career conundrum that you want me to break down next, give our hotline a call at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. In the meantime, I'm dying to hear your reactions to today's conversation. Head over to the Bossed Up blog at bossedup.org slash episode 158 to weigh in in the comments section with your thoughts, questions, feedback, comments, additions, links, whatever you've got to share. We want to continue the conversation with you there or on social media. I'm at Emily Aries or at Bossed Up Org on all the things. Can't wait to hear from y'all and can't wait to hang with some of y'all at Bossed Up Bootcamp real soon. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll continue to lift as we climb. <laughs>